Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesselin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. On Miranda Warnings today, we have uh, two guests, Camille Mackler and Sarah Rogerson. They are both co-chairs of the New York State Bar Association's Committee on Immigration Representation. Welcome, you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Camille is also the Director of Immigration Legal Policy at the New York Immigration Coalition. And Sarah Rogerson is a professor at Albany Law School and Director of the Immigration Law Clinic at Albany Law School. Today we're going to talk about the immigration issue that we're faced with in our country, and specifically uh, how it's impacted Albany and upstate New York, and we've played a a fairly significant role regarding the immigration issue here in the U.S. So let me ask you, can you just tell us a little bit about the issue that we're seeing in immigration today here in our country? There are so many issues, (laughs) Um, but I think the one that is most prominent that's sort of brought um, the most attention to bear locally is the issue of family separation and the most recent zero tolerance enforcement policy at the border, which uh, just breaking news yesterday, it was confirmed that that was an official policy of of this administration to actually separate families as a deterrent. Um, That's what it was intended to do, to to deter future unlawful migration to the United States. Um, so that, we didn't know that then, um, and when that news broke, um, of course, family separation's been happening in many different forms through the execution of our immigration laws. Um, one of the things that we talk about is that it doesn't matter where families are separated, if they're separated at the border, if they're separated by virtue of enforcement on the streets here in New York City or even out on Elk Street right outside, um, that's still a separation. Uh, But basically, the stepped-up enforcement on the interior and then, of course, this zero-tolerance policy on the border, which really... uh, beefed up what's called uh, mandatory detention. Tell me what the zero policy, zero tolerance policy refers to. It's hard to, to, to pin it down because the government has issued so many conflicting statements about what that policy meant and whether or not it's being enforced. But essentially what it means is that anyone coming across the southern border, even if they presented themselves lawfully at a point of entry and waited their turn and, and articulated a credible fear or indicated that they um, were seeking asylum in the United States, they were detained immediately. It was detained first and asked questions later, in a nutshell. And by zero tolerance, does that mean that uh, everybody, regardless of their circumstances, is going to be detained? Man, woman, or children, yes. And essentially, uh, because of the way that our government processes uh, children differently um, than, than parents, this administration used those processes as a legal justification for why family separation was, uh, quote unquote, just following the law, which in fact it wasn't. There's a lot of discretion in immigration law, and there's a lot of discretion in this policy. And unfortunately, uh, most recently we've heard that there are still people waiting to get into this country who will ultimately end up in detention. 
Uh, and th the reason why this hit locally is because they're running out of space. They're running out of room. They can't build facilities fast enough. And so we had a, a group of over 300 people who we call accidental New Yorkers who were flown up from the border uh, and deposited in the Albany County Jail right in our backyard. So Camille, maybe you could tell us why is it that uh, individuals that were detained at the border uh, via this zero tolerance policy were somehow uh, made their way up to up to Albany. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, I think the broader way of answering your, your original question is that the issues and the policies that have been rolled out over the last 18 months, going on two years now, have really exposed a lot of cracks in the system and, and a lot of flaws within our immigration system that went under the radar for many years because it's very complicated because if it's not something you actually have to deal with personally, you may not, you know, really have to, to stop and, and question as much. But it has shown sort of the, the glaring lack of due process and the glaring lack of transparency in which our immigration legal system operates. And so what's going on is ICE, I'm sorry, Immigration and Customs Enforcement as a federal agency, of course, immigration law is federal law, it's enforced by federal agencies. And so when they are trying to respond to a situation, they they don't really see, you know, the geographic boundaries that, that we have to confront when we're trying to provide legal assistance and stuff to other people. And so what happened at the border, as Sarah explained, the zero tolerance policy just led to a complete mushrooming of detention of immigrants and asylum seekers specifically at the U.S. 7 border. And the U.S. 7 border, of course, has been a, an incredibly problematic area for a long time. So they, but ICE, as they try to deal with that in conjunction with Customs and Border Protection, which oversees Border Patrol and oversees the, the ports of entry into the United States, had to had to find space to detain all these individuals and and in doing so ice headquarters in washington dc sort of looking at where they had available bed space saw 300 beds available in the albany county jail actually um piggybacking on a contract that was executed between the jail and the marshals almost 20 years ago now um sorry almost 15 years ago now um they just transferred these individuals over. And it's actually been interesting, you know, as we've been learning more about how the process went, um, a lot of these individuals actually were not in ICE, ICE's custody until they arrived in Albany, meaning they literally were transferred from border processing facilities, which are operated by Customs Border Protection, to ICE custody in Albany. Usually what we normally see is that they are apprehended at the border, they get processed by Customs Border Protection um, and or Border Patrol, get handed over to ICE, and then ICE houses them somewhere and then maybe then transfers them more into the country. Um, and we know that it happened all over the country. We know that they sent people to Oregon, to Colorado, to Georgia, um, to Florida, to Texas, but we, to our knowledge, um, the 300 that came to Albany in that eight-day period, end of June, early July, is the largest one-time transfer of individuals from the southern border anywhere in the United States. Historically, you know, the Albany County uh, Sheriff's Office, which has a little over 1,000-bed facility, would on mm -hmm. occasion house detainees from the U.S. Marshal's Office. If they were passing through or they there was an overflow somewhere, they would do that, correct? Yeah, I mean, the Albany, the Albany County Jail has contracts with various agencies to take on what they call borders. So it could be the U.S. Marshals. It could be, you know, other state facilities that just need uh, a, play, a bed in an 
in a detention facility somewhere. Um, they had, and, and Sarah can speak more to this than I can since she's on the ground and has been for seven years, they had been holding ICE detainees on and off since 2005. You know, people who'd been arrested in the interior, who'd been handed over from local um, police enforcement. There had been a one-time transfer from the southern border a couple of years ago of just under 50 women. Um, so they'd been used to holding ICE detainees, just not to this level and not individuals who were whose case were in the legal posture that these 300 were in. Right. So it's not unusual that there would be some coming through yeah. in a place where there was uh, available space. And in, in the Albany County Sheriff's, there was available space. But what's different about this is that we're talking about hundreds of people, an influx of hundreds of people, uh, some of them that have been separated from their family were their children included no in no these children hundreds? no um there were there are women uh, the facility uh the albany county jail is not able to um, detain children so and and in fact the sheriff made it clear to the department of homeland security when they called that he wanted nothing to do with family separation cases um, he he asked them to make representations to him that the people that would be coming were not uh, parents or otherwise separated from their family. And ultimately, of course, there's over 300 people. There were a number of cases um, involving family separation, including siblings that were separated, uh, parents forcibly separated from their children, um, children literally ripped out of the arms of uh, one father in particular who we spoke to. We wouldn't have known all of that, of course, unless we were able to rapidly mobilize and, and get in there. And, and this was pursuant to a longstanding agreement that we had with the sheriff. About five years ago, a student approached me with the idea uh, and said, you know, I, I didn't realize that they were holding immigrant detainees in the jails. There's something that we could do for them, professor. And I was like, well, I didn't know that either. Let's give it a try. So of course, like we do it at Los schools we made it into a learning exercise and I said why don't you guys put together a pitch um, think about what kind of project you want and we pitched it to the sheriff um, actually it was Judge Graffio who made the introduction um, from between us and the sheriff Judge Graffio was working with us on the judicial side of things sort of thinking through immigration issues from the bench um, uh, and sort of overheard us talking about this issue made the introduction and the sheriff was like, sure, this is a no-brainer. I mean, his facility is run to reduce recidivism rates and to keep their population low. That's why they had so many beds available, because the the law enforcement approach at that particular in this particular county is to keep people out of jail. So he, from his perspective, it was just a matter of, of, of rights and justice and, and what he thinks, you know, how his facility should be run. So this so, is the Albany County Sheriff Craig Apple. That's right. And you've had a longstanding relationship uh, with the Albany County Sheriff where he's welcomed legal representation coming in to assist uh, these detainees in their uh, pursuit of legal Yep. Rights. Yes. And it's not just it, it's not just immigration counsel. You know, you see when we're in there a lot and um, they have very liberal visitation policies for attorneys. You see public defenders in there all the time. Um, he values, you know, access to counsel as a fundamental right for the people that he's responsible for in that facility. Uh, and he's been able to um, 
translate that to his staff. So it's a, sort of a system-wide issue. So there weren't any problems that we that you see traditionally with trying to get lawyers into detention facilities to assist immigrants because they they all knew who we were, they knew why we were there, and they were told by their boss to let us in. So it went a lot smoother than it has at other facilities. I, I should say that the Department of Homeland Security um, had to be consulted initially five years ago when we pitched this project, and that's what the sheriff said, you know, I'm happy to do it, but we need to make sure that we have an agreement. These are not my, they're not part of the general population. They're detainees, they're borders. So we also talked with the Department of Homeland Security and we came up with an agreement around the law school's presence in the jail. Um, And so basically what we did this summer is scale that up. We used the same intake documents that were compiled by students. Again, I had a student project centered around what kind of information should we get from immigrant detainees? Uh, How do we screen them for legal relief and how do we provide referral services? And then of course, our partners with um, the legal project locally. Um, They've been wonderful partners and as the need for immigrants um, to have legal services in the Capital District expands, the legal project has been on the forefront of trying to to rally um, pro bono legal services around this population um, through the Capital Region Immigration Collaborative, which has met regularly for like 15 years. Uh, Camille, if you could, um, uh, I wanted to, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about uh, the fact that we understand that there's a right to counsel in criminal proceeding. There is a, a right to legal counsel if you're indigent in a criminal proceeding. There is no corresponding right to counsel for immigrant detainees. And Camille, maybe you can tell us a little bit about why it's so so important that we that there is a representation and what happens when there is no such legal representation. Yeah, and I think I mean the answer to me is sort of on, on two levels. And the first is the, the much more pragmatic one. So you're right, there's no access to counsel for individuals um, who are who are at the border and that's actually true for everyone but it's it's true for u.s citizens when you're at the border of the united states you don't have the right to have legal help and and legally that is where these 300 individuals were right even though physically they were in albany new york legally they are still in the same position as if they were at the border and and it's something that um to me the the legal profession has addressed remarkably over the last few years because Remember, our first real big act of legal uh, rapid response was at airports around the country, again, at the border. Um, and so so you don't have a right to a lawyer there. There are very limited instances in immigration where you have the right to competent counsel or to counsel at all. Generally, when you're facing deportation, which, again, these individuals are not yet facing deportation. They're actually still in a position where they're asking the United States to let them in and, and ask for asylum. And, and once they pass that threshold of having been permitted to ask for asylum, which is what we've been working on with them, then you have a right to an attorney at no expense to the government, which you can imagine you're a refugee arriving at the U.S. borders. You know, you fled for your life. Here you are, wh- wherever you are physically, you're, you're at the border asking for asylum. You've been told you can apply for asylum. You're in a detention facility. How are you going to find a lawyer, um, much less pay for one? Um, if you know, if you had any life savings, you've probably just spent them on the trip up. Um, you're facing a situation where you may have to pay an immigration bond, which is an equivalent of bail. So, so that's um, that's sort of where where we are in terms of the access to counsel for these individuals. Now, New York State has stepped up and prov- will provide lawyers to these individuals while they remain detained in New York State. Um, and and are facing and are having to navigate their asylum 
process. If they are released from detention and move outside of New York State, their chances of obtaining legal help um, really depends on where they where they go in the country. Many of them are going to places that do not have legal infrastructure set up to assist them. They'll be able to be represented if they can afford and find a private attorney. Um, sometimes you don't even have private bar to fill in the gaps in areas where, where immigrants live. So um, that's sort of the more pragmatic answer to your question. I think the, the broader answer, and I just kind of want to... Uh, piggyback on something that Sarah mentioned about the sheriff, uh, the Albany County Sheriff's approach to providing counsel and, and finding that that's, you know, a very integral right um, and a very fundamental right that individuals should have access to. It's actually been remarkable to me that it's not just the sheriff, and I think we have to say that. It really is the jail leadership, the superintendent, the jail administrators, all the way on down to the corrections officers who you know, I, I, certainly at the leadership level, I think they understood from the get-go the importance of what we were doing. But the corrections officers, this was very new. They were being asked to do a lot of things they'd never been asked to do before. And it has led to some really great conversations and dialogue. And I think I feel it all the more because it feels like sometimes rational dialogue is not exactly possible, especially where immigration is concerned. It's so divisive. Um, and there, there certainly is such a divisiveness happening right now. Um, but it's led to some really great conversations. And I think, you know, us explaining to them the importance and, and the surprise in a lot of them that individuals don't have, that, that these immigrants don't have a public defender, that they don't have an access to a lawyer the way, you know, the, the traditional population in jail would. Um, and for us also to understand from their perspectives what it's like to be working in a jail where all of a sudden you have this population with these very specific needs. And, and I'm hopeful that it is actually moving the needle further than any sort of more active academic discussion around the access to counsel issue and, you know, where do constitutional rights begin and end and, and in administrative law and all of that have, would have done. Well, so, so the two of you have been uh, right in the center of helping to organize the pro bono legal representation for these hundreds that have come to Albany. Tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're you're doing and the people that uh, you're helping organize are doing and the legal needs that these immigrant detainees now in a foreign country, in a foreign place, detained in a Albany County facility, legal needs that they have and how lawyers from around the state basically uh, have come together to try to assist. So we were lucky enough to have a heads up. The sheriff gave us a call um, a few days before uh, the first group arrived. And I was coincidentally um, riding a train to New York City to see Camille. <laughs> and so we had a, an opportunity to chat about it. and, and to When say, was this? This was in... June 14th. Yeah. June. June 14th. Okay. June 14th. You remember the date? <laughs> um, so I... We... You know, I, of course, I, I turned to Camille because of the efforts that NYIC and Camille um, had launched the day, the morning of the travel ban, um, the Muslim ban, and the the legal operation that she that she set up virtually overnight um, and brought together people from all corners to address legal needs. And so, of course, she was the first person I, I, I spoke to. I also um, called some local advocates because I was 
feeling discouraged that we weren't able to actually do much for detainees who are currently being held at the Albany County Jail because they were either awaiting deportation uh, or they had exhausted all of their potential avenues for relief. And so I called it a sort of palliative care. Uh, and it wasn't very fulfilling for the students. You know, we were just there to make sure they were being treated okay and had access to their medication, which we never had a problem with uh, because of the jail staff and their attitude toward um, the, the people that they work with at the jail. So um, we had no idea really what to expect with this group. And I was in the process of like changing my mindset around to like what what legal relief could we actually bring to bear for these folks? Like why are we, the very existential why are, why are we here question. Um, we had no idea that they were coming from the like straight from Customs and Border protect, Protection custody. We had we had no idea what their needs would be. And in fact, the first group that was that, that was transferred to the Albany County Jail after we spoke to the sheriff was a group from Batavia that had appeals pending. And so we thought, you know, well, that's odd. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, they were also supposed to come in groups of 30 to 40 phased in over six to eight weeks instead of 300 all at once. Um, so we had you know, it's this is the way all immigration operations are, though, especially rapid response. You get bits and pieces of information. The government doesn't tell you anything. Um, and you kind of have to guess. So we knew they were coming from the um, somewhere close to the border. And we knew their names. And that was it. And so when we first went in, we just scaled up what we had been doing. We used our intake form, which is very comprehensive because it covers pretty much anything. Um and we figured out very quickly um, at the first day that they were um, pre-CFI, it's called. Uh, they had not had their credible fear interview screening, which typically happens within 48 hours of crossing the border. So it, we knew right away that we had an unusual situation, but we also knew exactly what we needed to do. And that was to prepare people for these interviews because we knew that that was the next stage of the process. Also, we knew enough about um, working with detainees to scream for things like, are your religious needs being met? Um, the federal government is terrible, for example, with the Sikh population in terms of um, confiscating their turbans and religious paraphernalia and shaving their hair, which is um, religiously significant. And so we, we kept an eye on that. Um, we started bringing in groups from all over New York State um, as soon as we knew what sort of legal position these folks were in in order to get at all those different pieces of an asylum claim and start helping them, um, first of all, figure out where they were. No one told them where they were. We were we had volunteers literally drawing maps of the United States and putting an X where Albany is and explaining where uh, where in the world they were. We did uh, group presentations just about the credible fear interview process. We had law professors come up from Cardozo and from New York Law School and other places. Um, it was such a beautiful community response. Day after day, we as we identified more and more needs, we we tapped into those networks that were established after the JFK response that Camille has nurtured and can speak more to. And over 80 legal service organizations, plus the private bar, plus the state bar, everybody wanted to help. So then the challenge was, well, we're triaging the individuals. Um, first of all, they came from over 30 different countries. We had over 17 different languages spoken. Yeah, let, and let's go into that a little bit because sure. you, you, you talked about this just to be clear, that this was originally, you know, started as what was called the Muslim travel ban. Um, mm -hmm. But the people that you were 
dealing with and the people that are detained under the zero tolerance policy were not all Muslims. They were no. coming from, as you said, 30 different countries. Yeah, and in and, and a very different procedural posture. I mean, some of the people who landed at JFK had green cards, and it was just the, it, the policy was unclear as to whether green cards were being accepted, which was just crazy. I mean, there were a lot of different legal issues there. In this group, we had a more homogenous situation in terms of the legal issues presented, and that made it a little bit easier um, in terms of figuring out the appropriate response. Well, let me ask you, because you said something at the beginning that uh, you had, uh, it's just been revealed that this zero tolerance policy was designed to be a deterrent uh, so that it be really harsh uh, harsh treatment so that people wouldn't be coming into the country illegally. If it's designed to be a deterrent, um, are some of these lack of due process issues, lack of logistical understanding issues, lack of providing respect for people's uh, religious freedom, can it be said that those are deliberate uh, as part of this whole uh, deterrent process that it's not an accident that these individuals being treated in a confusing oh, way? Yeah, it's definitely well, look, not think, an accident. Well, I think, first of all, we just need to examine what we mean when we say they're coming to the country illegally. I mean, there's 300 people that we got in those eight days, right? 50, at least 50 of them went to a, board, uh, to a Customs and Border Protection booth, a, a, a lawful border crossing, and said, I'm here to ask for asylum, and we're still detained, and some of them are still detained. The others, by and large, went to the physical board of the United States looking for a U.S. government agent to ask for asylum. Like They were looking to turn themselves in. So I think we need to, when we're talking about who these individuals are, we are really talking about legitimately asylum seekers. Now, whether, you know, we can debate whether they all meet the legal definition of a refugee, whether they meet the international legal definition of refugee versus the U.S. domestic law legal definition of a refugee, but, you know, and, and whether that qualifies them for asylum, but they did generally were, were not trying to cross into the United States and, you know, travel to New York, Colorado, California, wherever, in the hopes of not being detected. I think that's a, it's an important point. So these individuals that you were representing all saw, all were seeking legal immigration yes. into the U.S. They Correct. weren't being smuggled in the back of a truck or digging a tunnel, you know, under the border. They were coming right. in openly, uh, seeking asylum, as most immigrants that come to this country do. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the numbers are at historic lows. You know, the zero tolerance policy artificially inflated, you know, the 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 public's perspective of what's going on at the border. The reality is fewer and fewer people are coming into the country that way. Um, deterrence policies are not typically, uh, the, there isn't a, a um, correlation between, um, or there may be a correlation, but there is no, there's no causation between deterrence policies and, and, and pe- flows of people, right? There's no connection there. And our, our government keeps continuing to do this. And, and this administration in particular has been especially harsh with its policies. The most recent one from this past weekend was um, some regulations that would basically um, put folks in jeopardy of obtaining lawful immigration status, of having their applications approved if they receive some sort of public benefit. 
Uh, and early on in the conversation, uh, there was a lot of confusion. Um, it wasn't clear which public benefits would, would, would make somebody what's called a public charge or a risk of becoming a public charge, uh, which is just another way to stigmatize um, poverty. And that, that has already had a negative impact on kids accessing school lunches. Some of them U.S. citizen kids because their families are afraid that if they take advantage of the school lunch program, that that will make them ineligible for the immigration benefit that they're seeking. So it's just needless suffering from this particular administration. And it's every two weeks, there's another policy that's announced. It's really, it's really very difficult to keep up with because, you know, when you talk about the real tragedy uh, of families being separated, young children, coming with their parents and being separated at the border. At first, we're told, well, that's that's not happening. And then when we it's established that it is happening at significant levels uh, and that we're not able to keep track of where these children and their families are going, then we're told, well, maybe those families should have thought of that before they decided to come here, which leads you to think that this whole policy – um, is really a deliberate effort at at causing harm to these individuals that are coming, and all these problems that that you and others, uh, other attorneys that are trying to sort out, uh, are really problems that are it appears to be deliberately created. Well, and so this also brings to bear another aspect of the law that my clinic is getting increasingly involved in, and that's uh, government accountability. So the reason why we know that this was deliberate as of 24 hours ago is because a FOIA response, uh, a FOIA was filed demanding documents, and a memo was produced that was signed by the DHS secretary that that articulated several different options and chose the harshest one possible. So we know it's intentional because we have attorneys working to bring to shed light on what's essentially going on behind closed doors. Now, the problem with accountability work is that you don't find out about about the truth until much later. And usually, you know, it's too late to do anything about it. Um, But it, it doesn't reduce the meaningfulness of that work and and that is to put pressure on the government to so that they understand that we are watching and we're prepared and we're ready to respond and and we're not going to let them get away with it and in this particular instance you know our government either through incompetence or deliberately has caused these substantial problems to these people that are seeking to live in in the united states and it's the attorneys that have stepped up voluntarily to try to help and to try to sort it out. One of the things that uh, the group that you were involved in worked on was preparing these detainees for their credible fear screening process. Sounds, I'm not sure what that is, but it sounds very uh, intimidating. Uh, what is the credible fear screening process and why is it so important to a detainee? I don't know, if Camille, so, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, I think, so the credible fear interview at its basic is, to, to apply to qualify for asylum in the United States, you need to show that you're an individual who cannot um, or is unable to return to their home country because of past persecution or, or a credible fear of future persecution based on one of, one of five grounds, race, ethnicity, religion, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. So the credible fear interview, or we refer to it as a CFI, is meant to be sort of that threshold, are you actually articulating a fear, and is that fear credible? 
um, and is it on one of the five grounds so that, you know, is there a connection to one of those five grounds so that you have a basis to file for asylum? What it is not meant to be is an adjudication of the asylum application, right? It's not meant to be a determination of whether you are likely to succeed on the merits of your application. You're not supposed to present a lot of evidence or any evidence even it really is just supposed to be a conversation where someone is assessing are you saying you're afraid because you're actually afraid and this is on something that will allow you to apply for asylum or you're just saying it for any you know number of other reasons Camille how um, would or, that be proven uh if you're if you're presenting it I mean what kind of information would be provided what would be an example of a credible fear that would be successful so through testimony an, off- an asylum officer who's been trained to do a CFI would ask you you know why can you not return home? Who is harming you? Why, you know, why are they targeting you specifically? Why? It really is all done through testimony. And then part of it is the officer makes a credibility assessment. Like, do they believe this person or not? Um, and then, and, you know, the other part of it is like, is the story consistent? Is it is it believable? And then is it something that would lead to asylum? I think what we've seen, though, is certainly over the, I mean, over the last few years, but certainly over the last few months, new and new policy guidance putting out there that has raised the burden of proof so high and that has raised the bar so high that individuals are almost needing to prove an asylum claim and make legal arguments at the CFI stage when they are completely unequipped to do it. And that's why the work that we've done and the lawyers coming in and preparing people and giving them orientations as to what's about to happen and, you know, teasing out their, I don't want to say that's the wrong word to use actually, but helping them, you know, get their story out there and and understanding the importance of, of telling all the details and all the facts, all the things that they may not want to feel comfortable talking about in front of a stranger, why that's so important is because this burden of the CFI has been raised exponentially under this administration. Well, in fact, in just a couple of weeks after the first group arrived, the attorney general, um, because he has weird um, powers under the Immigration and Nationality Act where he can uh, step into any matter in, that's pending and, and pluck it out and make his own ruling, he did that. Um, for a case called Matter of AB, um, which essentially makes it more difficult for victim, arguably for victims of domestic violence to seek protection because the argument is that the harm has been done by a private actor, even if the government is unwilling or unable to control what's going on. And, um, you know, that that is has the potential of being very damaging. And then also um, gang-based violence. So victims, uh, in usually then we're talking about recruitment. Of, of young, usually men, but also targeting of women through sexual violence by the gangs, um, that those are more um, private types of harms that the government is not um, perpetrating itself. Um, so we'll, we'll wait to see where that goes. The good news is that as a result of our prep of these individuals, there are some people whose stories would fit in those categories that were still receiving positive credible fear determinations. And we think that that's directly related to them having several sessions with an attorney um, to, to prepare for that interview and to understand in an hour and a half or two hour long interview what the most important pieces of the story are. Um, if you can imagine fleeing your country due to government violence and then you come here and immediately you're detained by government agents and then you're looked after by government agents and then the one person that asks you about your story is a government agent, that makes it very difficult to trust any system or to, especially when you're talking about things as vulnerable as, as rape, domestic violence. Um, those are the types of things that really um, our system isn't designed to listen to well. 
domestically or otherwise. And so part of it was also just having another legal expert in to, to explain everybody's role and to explain that this credible fear interview process is confidential. So um, in certain respects, it's um, and part of the process and the only way to advance in the in the legal system here. Maybe you can give us an example of somebody that you've that's come through the system that you've helped um, make their way uh, through this process. Um, Camille, did did you want to weigh in on that one? Sure. I mean, so we had, you know, we actually had a story last night where this young woman came. She was detained for actually quite a while at the border before she was transferred to Albany County. Um, end of May uh, was when she was arrested originally. So she was there about a, a few weeks longer than most. And she was transferred at the end of June to the Albany County Jail um, from a very violent, politically torn country in Africa um, and had suffered several kinds of violence um, without going too much into the details of her case and um, was very was very fragile when we first met her um, but was very scared was very very confused um, you know wasn't um, was, was in a pretty bad place and we were able to meet with her and counsel her and get her, you know address some of her other needs medical needs sort of make sure that they were flagged for staff at the jail you know sort of communicated for her because sometimes it's hard to advocate for yourself when you're in that position um especially you know when you come from places where the power dynamics between genders are are different and we actually in her case we were able to connect her with a full-on pro bono attorney who represented her through who agreed to take her case until it could be handed off to somebody else. Um, and because we felt that she needed some very strong advocacy to try to get the case going as, as fast as possible and, and try to get her release as fast as possible. And she ultimately, she passed her credible fear interview. She was found credible um, and found to have a basis for asylum. She was one of the individuals who presented at a port of entry and had been detained since presenting at a port of entry. So she was able to, um, once she was transferred to the Batavia detention facility, which ICE runs, which is about an hour east of Buffalo, after she had her interview and she was able to be released without having to pay a financial bond. And she was released last night. Unfortunately, when she was released, there were no buses that were leaving Batavia anymore. So ICE dropped her off at the Greyhound station, which is actually not a station at all. It's a gas station um, off a side road in Batavia, New York, which, like I said, is about an hour east of Buffalo in Genesee County. And they just left her there with no money, no phone, no mode of communication. She had been able to call her sponsor before leaving the facility, and her sponsor, who lives in, in the Midwest, had told her, had bought her a bus ticket for the first available bus out um, but her attorneys called me in a panic because she was just standing in this, you know, hungry and without the appropriate clothing and um, completely lost and, and terrified. And so we were able to engage a network of volunteers. I reached out. So she called me. I called Sarah because that is sort of how things work now. <laughs> um, and, um, and we were able to engage and we an anonymous donor um, booked her hotel room in the Best Western. And we were able to get her safely into a hotel room where she was able to spend the night, where she was able to take a shower. Um, where she was able to communicate with her attorney, with her family members, um, and was able at 5 a.m. this morning to get on that bus and to to make her way to her family finally. She's been in this country about four months. And that was just a really gratifying way <laughs> for us to see sort of a case 
not from start to finish because the bulk of our case is actually still ahead of her right now. She needs to go through deportation proceedings and prove her asylum claim. Um, but but we were able to intervene in several moments of crisis because we had that access from the very, maybe not from the very beginning, but at least from the moment she arrived in New York. And we were able to engage a broad variety of partners and and make sure that this woman, who's been through so much, safely got to her final destination and, and is able to assert her legal rights. Camille, I mean, that's a, that's a very compelling story. And just, I, I think it uh, dramatizes uh, that the work that you and these uh, other attorneys are doing goes beyond just providing, you know, legal advice. Uh, there is a certain level of, of human dignity here that is being stripped from these individuals that uh, you need to have an advocate uh, to just help point these people in the right direction and give the, keep them with human dignity. So I'm going to thank both of you for your work and in coordinating the, the hundreds of attorneys that have been helping, both on behalf of the Bar Association and the legal profession, but also on behalf of humanity. These are people that uh, are coming to our country for a better life and are uh, obviously being treated uh, in a way that nobody should be. So it is always important for attorneys to... Uh, step up when that happens. And uh, the two of you, as well as the other organizations that you've mentioned, including the New York State Bar Association, have helped to organize literally hundreds of attorneys to provide this uh, work. So so thank you both. We'd like to end our Miranda warnings on an upbeat note, and I'd like to have each of you share with us a movie, book, music that has some significance to you that our, our listeners can take with them. So mine is maybe not as upbeat, but <laughs> um, it's a book called Trauma Stewardship, which I highly recommend. A human trafficking uh, law professor at the University of Michigan recommended it to me for people who are doing this kind of work. Um, and it's not just us, right? Uh, what One of the things I learned this summer is that one in five corrections officers suffers PTSD at rates that are greater than Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans and far higher than police officers officers. Uh, and that that was surprising to me. And then I was ashamed that I didn't know it. And so um, one of my goals for this project, too, is to just think about the brokenness of our criminal justice system overall and be a part of the healing, um, because we have a lot of willing partners even within the system itself. So I'm sharing that book with anybody who um, who will, who will <laughs> indulge me. But I think um, that uh, self-care is talked about a lot these days, but nobody really does it. And um, that book is a good window um, or a starting point. And it's written from the viewpoint um, of, of people who, who do this kind of work regularly and whose thinking about the world is, is shifted, um, which, of course, it's going to be. This has been, I should say, one of the best summers of my life, as challenging as it was, because of all of the beauty um, that that. I was privileged to witness both in our profession and then also in our community. Uh, Camille, do you have something you want to share? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think anyone who knows me knows that my my go-to whenever I'm going through anything in my life is The Little Prince mm. by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And I think, you know, there's so many quotes from it, but the one that's really been in my mind this summer is uh, when he 
when he's looking for water through the Sahara and he says, what makes the desert beautiful is that somewhere it hides a well. Well, thank you. And I think both of you have shown that uh, even in this uh, desert of uh, deterrence that we're seeing here, that there is a, a, a well of humanity. And uh, we thank you both for that. And, th- and thank you both for sharing your the story of this uh, with Miranda Warnings. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings for all things legal and some that aren't.